Hey, what's up, everybody? And welcome to the Foreign Domestic Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Will. And uh, this week, finally, um, some information was released that we've been waiting for for quite some time now. We've had like, um, of course, several podcast episodes uh, regarding this topic, too. So, and we I'm actually talking about 538's oh. uh, model. Oh, but really? Yeah, I, I, I suppose... Joe Biden picked a vice presidential candidate as well this week. We've been talking about um, that for a while, so that, yeah. So that, that information was finally released, but also the five thirty eight. That's also important. Yeah. Joe Biden picked uh, Kamala Harris. Um, it seems to me that the trend this this election cycle has been just like the obvious boring things happen, mm-hmm. and and there's always like some uncertainty it's like at the beginning okay this looks likely to happen in the middle there's some chaos some weird stuff oh wait maybe maybe this isn't likely to happen and then it happens Mm -hmm. (laughs) like joe biden was uh leading primary polls before he even entered the race back in um 20 18, 2019, um, and despite, I don't know, in like late February, it looking as if he, he might not win, in, in fact, it looked like he was likely to lose the Democratic nomination he won. He turned it around. Mm-hmm. And, and for about as long as I mean, you heard people talking about a, a Biden-Harris ticket. I'm sure I heard the first mention of this probably in 2017. It's been... Yeah, I, I saw a few tweets from 2018 uh, talking about it, too, so... Yeah, it's... It's, it's, it's been a it, topic for a, a while. It's, it's always seemed kind of obvious... Um, I, I was seriously conflicted um, between the two finalists, uh, Susan Rice and, and Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were they were both good choices, um, but um, it, it it just made a lot of sense. Um, there have been a couple pretty obvious criteria for being the vice presidential pick. And discussion of other candidates either involved ignoring some one of these criteria or adding new criteria that was perhaps less relevant. So Joe Biden himself, it, it was always necessary that he was going to pick a woman, mm-hmm. but he, he made the decision to, to say that out loud. Um, towards the end of the of the primary campaign, um, he decided to say that that was kind of the big headline that was taken away from from the last Democratic debate um, between him and Bernie Sanders. The other big criteria, or it was always likely that it was going to be a black woman. Stacey Abrams was talked about at length. Um, Susan Rice, more recently, uh, Karen Bass, more recently, um, 
Val Demings uh, in mid to late July. That intensified after uh, the events of June. Um, George Floyd protests and yeah, everything following that. And there had been several candidates in the mix. At, at that point, it seemed like Right after the, the Floyd protests happened, not only because she was white, but also because she, being a senator from Minnesota and a former prosecutor from that area, Amy Klobuchar was took herself out of the running, but in reality likely was already out of the running, which was probably the biggest development because she seemed to be the, the candidate for the job with whom Joe Biden you know, got got along the best. Mm -hmm. um, and Gretchen Whitmer was another another option. There was some. <laughs> there was there was a little bit of a frenzy when it, it was found that a plane had flown from from Michigan to to Delaware, a private chartered plane. Um, and subsequently, the assumption was that Gretchen Whitmer was on that plane, and that was subsequently confirmed. Um, so there, there was some uproar over the weekend among um, black activists in, in the Democratic Party who were upset at the prospect of, of Whitmer being picked. But ultimately, Kamala Harris ultimately it seemed that it was going to be a black woman and, the, and then the third criteria was it's incredibly important given that the first like we have data that tells us that vice presidential candidates don't help a ton and, and where they do it's really on the margins the main thing you want to get out of a vice president in in political terms, of course, you want like a a good collaborator. In this case, you want somebody who can be the future of the party. Mm. Um, you certainly want someone that can take over the office of president. But in political terms, you need somebody who's not going to be a political liability. And there were a number of candidates... Um, Susan Rice, uh, Val Demings, Gretchen Whitmer, um, Karen Bass, who had not been candidates for national office. They did not run for president. Therefore, they had not been vetted by the media. Mm -hmm. And you saw this a little bit when Karen Bass was, was in the discussion. There were suddenly stories coming out about statements that she made long ago um, that expressed positive sentiments towards uh, Cuban dictator Fidel Castro yeah. and toward the Church of Scientology. So that, whether that was, you know, vetting by the media, which or it was assisted by 
you know, some opposition research from Kamala Harris's camp, which has has been posited, and I would not be shocked if that were the case. Mm-hmm. That has effectively sunk her her chances of becoming uh, effectively sunk her chances of becoming vice president. So th- this was a big fear that that you would have a candidate who, who had not yet been vetted by the media and or, or had not been vetted recently. Like Susan Rice, her big scandals all, all have to do with Benghazi and other foreign policy blunders that took place during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. But they're not issues that have been dredged up recently. A- any concerns about Kamala Harris any things in her past, stuff like that, those things were came up during the primary campaign in the past year. And frankly, a lot of the things that, a lot of the clips that surfaced of her that, that may have hurt her in the primary campaign were were clips of her saying things that made her sound, you know, overly may, maybe tougher on crime than the current it, it the current democratic party would like which i thought that was always to a certain degree an unfair characterization but dispositionally she is certainly like there was this clip that that's making the rounds right now where she basically says that 18 to 24-year-olds are stupid. And while this is just true, <laughs> it also, uh, like, I mean, I, I, I'm i 18, I'm not offended by that. Of course, I don't consider myself one of the stupid ones. But, you know, she's talking about, like, people that age do do stupid things, say stupid things. Anyway, that that yeah. that caused caused some outrage, but I think the point is that in a general election, that that plays to her benefit. I think a, another difference you have from twenty sixteen is that you had forces from the left, like I don't know, Bernie Sanders and and his people, although he he did not make these criticisms as explicit. And Trump, who made them more than explicit, and his camp were both pushing on Hillary Clinton on the same things. They were saying, well, she's corrupt, she's um, establishment, she's this, she's that, Benghazi. Um, you know, at every Clinton sca- scandal you can remember, Whitewater, Lewinsky, like, like the whole nine yards, it, that was the same energy was coming from both extremes of the political spectrum, which lent some legitimacy to it. But with Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris, although I think Kamala Harris is, she's certainly to the left of me, but um, she is not all that well-liked by, you know, as shorthand, you could just say, like, Brooklyn socialists. 
Yeah. So you have people on the far left who are saying Joe Biden is a like racist um Republican like like all this talking about how he's too conservative, he's he's too this, he's too that. And then on the right, you have Donald Trump trying to say that they're crazy socialists. Which is hard. It's hard to make that stick when the real crazy socialists can't stand Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So I, I think that's that's another difference mm-hmm. in the whole between 2016 and now. Um, so as I alluded to earlier. Um, 538's forecast has come out this morning. And if you had asked me last night, I would have said it would be more conservative than the other forecasts, which have Biden at around 90 to 95%. Um, But I would have said it would have, you would probably see it in the 80 to 85% range. Mm Mm-hmm. Right now, it has Biden at at 71. And just to be clear, this is 71% chance of of winning the election. So this is is a probabilistic expression. It's not not like a poll. It's it's just the chance they have at winning. Now, the reason that this is so different is because... 538 made some choices, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't. I shouldn't say 538. I should say Nate Silver, who's like very smart, far smarter than me. So, like, I should say, first of all, I'm talking about this. Like, this is a debate between people who are way smarter than me and way no way, no way more about this stuff than me. So all I can do is try to synthesize the information and try to decide who I agree with. And Nate Silver did not... So there's been this debate occurring over fundamentals and to what extent you should include them in um, in, in models. Mm-hmm. Now... Nate Silver, and, and when I say fundamentals, I'm referring to, like, to what degree do you factor in the state of the economy into an election model? Now, Nate Silver has fundamentals in this model, but some of them are not... They're not as unequivocally bad for Trump as, um, as say, um, the economists' yeah. models or fundamentals are. And one of the reasons is that one of the main economic indicators, I think, if I recall correctly, he said there are three economic indicators that are that are in the um, in the model, uh, and, and I think one of them is personal income, which 
largely due to enhanced unemployment insurance, which we talked about last week, and we also talked about how it's expiring, um, ha has led to actually increased levels of personal income. So that is perhaps one reason why um, Biden's number is, is what it is right now. I think another reason is that th this is where I tend to maybe disagree because I, I, I actually think that that's a better way to look at economic indicators because like if you plugged in unemployment numbers, you would get a very different outlook. In a vacuum, you would assume a correlation between unemployment and personal income that has been turned on its head in like the reality of this situation. So I think that Nate Silver made a good choice in opting to use the indicator that probably has the most bearing on like the living standards of people. Where I tend to disagree is he finds a lot of ways to just inject uncertainty into the model, which is, like, there's obviously, there are something like 83 days in, until the election. There's a lot that can happen between now and then. But... He, where I don't think he, he often talks about not wanting to overfit models to, to past election years, but I, I think he does not properly account for how little variation there has been, and in my opinion, probably will continue to be in polling averages and probably in election day results um, compared to, say, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at... So part of that's better polling. Part of that's just increased polarization. Um, far fewer swing voters. If you go back and you look at... at, at retrospective polling averages for, say, 1988, eventually George H.W. Bush won in what was considered a landslide, but at, at certain points, Dukakis was up 10 or so points. So somebody might put out those numbers and say, well, look, Biden's, Biden's up a lot, but anything can happen. And, and, and yeah, anything can happen, but the point is, you'd need something far more unlikely to happen in this day and age than you'd need then. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know. It, again, I, like, there, there's an extent to which I just don't know what I'm talking about here. Like, if you asked me to build a model, I would be not even able to start doing that mm -hmm. so but that that being said 
having listened to to these arguments, I think it's reasonable to say that there's probably more uncertainty than, say, the economist's model presents, but there's probably less than um, 538's model presents. Mm -hmm. So if I had to guess, I would say the real probability of Joe Biden winning this election is somewhere around 85%. And just to, if anybody's interested in free money, um, so we're talking about how, um, like the the lower range of percent odds, according to to the different models that Joe Biden has, is seventy one percent. Well, if, if if you go to predict it, which is a betting market on, on political events and elections. To buy a, a Biden share is 59 cents. So that, that implies that according to this betting market, there's a 59% chance of Biden winning, which is still quite a bit less than 71. So, anywho, I mean, I'm not saying you, you should use betting markets, but... A lot of these markets are, are pretty inefficient, and inefficient markets are, are where money mm -hmm. can be made. So that's that's all I have on on the models. Oh, I, actually, I, I should also say I, I do think that so seventy one percent is the same chance that Hillary Clinton had on election day. If you took this model, if you assumed, if you took this model and all you did was change the date, you didn't change polling averages, you didn't change news events that had occurred, you didn't change the economic fundamentals, and you just changed the date to election day, you would have likely, I don't know if Nate Silver ever gave like a, a specific number, but I think Biden's chance of winning would easily be in the 90s, mm. possibly upper 90s. So a day going by where nothing that big happens, or certainly not anything that helps Donald Trump, help, uh, will increase Joe Biden's chance of, of winning the election. So... That's all. That's all I have on 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 the model, um, and, and that's pretty much my view of the the presidential presidential election as it stands right now. Um, and just a, a final thought on on Kamala Harris. I know I'm kind of ping ponging around here, but in terms of of policy priorities, obviously the first ob domestic objectives in a Biden presidency would, would have to do with COVID, would have to do with the economic ramifications of COVID. That being said, one of my favorite things about Kamala Harris's primary campaign, second to her just absolute annihilation of Tulsi Gabbard, 
was her her sort of cornerstone plan. Her her main the her big like top of the line uh, policy plan was essentially I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the acronym that that she had for it but uh, essentially what it was was a large scale increase of the earned income tax credit mm-hmm. so I would hope so even if Democrats have a healthyish margin in the Senate, and even if they do get rid of the, the filibuster, you probably have two, maybe three pieces of major legislation in in the first two years. And then the midterms happen, and it, it's possible if not probable that that one house of congress changes hands so essentially you have a couple things that you can do i think eitc increase would both be easy to do even if the um even if the filibuster isn't eliminated you could do it through budget reconciliation which goes around the filibuster Mm -hmm. circumvents it Although you can only do one um, budget reconciliation bill a year, and if, if the Senate parliamentarian is feeling unfriendly, I suppose it's possible they could, depending on the parameters of, of this increase, but um, it, it's very doable, and I, I really hope that given that Kamala Harris will now have a prominent role in this administration, it's something that that can get done. Particularly, I would prefer this to a a minimum wage increase, which I think if economic conditions were what they were maybe a year and a half ago with like a very tight labor market, you could do a minimum wage increase with minimal economic harm. But given what unemployment is now, given what the labor market looks like at at present, it just seems thoroughly impractical to increase the minimum wage in a significant way at this point. And I think the EITC provides a a good alternative so that's that's the vp stuff um Mm -hmm. now we're gonna do some some foreign news wanna get us started on that sounds good so i'm sure uh many of you listening know um about the situation going on in belarus as it started to become uh, a mainstream topic but i'll just go over it real quick um, essentially, uh, Belarus has pretty much been under a dictatorship since the 90s, uh, since it broke off from the Soviet Union. Um, and it's been under uh, President Alexander Lukashenko, who has uh, won pretty much every election since uh, he took power in 1994. 
But um, every single election since the first election has been labeled by uh, international monitors as not free or fair. Um, well, uh, that's the same with uh, this election uh, that happened uh, a few days ago um, on August 9th. Um, except what's different about it is that um, the opposition is uh, actually protesting the results. And instead of sort of just kind of like accepting it and just um, waiting until the next election, um, the opposition candidates, uh, which I'm not going to attempt to say her, her name because it's... I, I, I practiced it. I, I'm, I'm going to give it a try. Okay. Um, Svetlana... Oh, never mind. Yeah. Wait, wait. We'll go Sviatlana. That's her first name. No, no, no. <laughs> give, give me one more try. All right, all right. Sikanuskaya. Okay. I think that's it. Sikanuskaya. That's not as bad as it looks. Um, but yeah, basically, she declared herself the uh, legit winner of the elections because the official results put uh, Lukashenko as winning the elections um, with an 80% of the vote. Um, and then pretty much everybody in the opposition said that, that the elections uh, were fraudulent and uh, knowing Belarus's track record, they likely are. Um, and so pretty much every candidate in the election uh, filed appeals to the uh, Belarusian Election Commission uh, calling for the results to be invalidated. And now there's widespread protests around the country, which uh, Lukashenko's government is cracking down uh, on brutally. Uh, like you're you're seeing police using live rounds on protesters. Um, I think two protesters have been two confirmed or three dead. Protesters have yeah. been killed. Yeah. Um, the UN says they're going to get involved, and it's it's a pretty bad situation overall. So basically, y you have these widespread protests and uh, now widespread crackdowns against them as Lukashenko tries to make sure he doesn't get ousted. But this is. Um, pretty important uh, in Belarus or and in Europe in general because this is the first time that um, there's been like major widespread protests uh, against uh, Lukashenko in a long time and um, the people are finally not afraid to stand up to him and also this is important for Europe because one of Europe's last dictatorships uh, at this moment is seems to be reaching its end but we'll we'll have to see. But overall, the situation, um, as 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 I said, the election was only a few days ago. The situation's developing now, but um, it it could uh, continue to get worse uh, as the time goes on because, um, as we've seen, we uh, with mass protests around the world, especially in countries like this, the uh, the crackdowns uh, don't stop and they don't. They don't get uh, any less worse, so yeah. Yeah, uh, the the opposition candidate Svetlana Sikhanuskaya, um be became the the opposition candidate because her husband was arrested. Mm -hmm. um, he had previously been been the candidate, um, so. She she has now fled the country. Um, there's really really horrifying scenes. Hopefully, there's resolution to this. Hopefully, Lukashenko is removed from office without 
much unrest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that would be the ideal outcome for the situation. Is uh, certainly yeah the peaceful removal of Lukashenko. But then again, as things like this go, probably he's not going to relinquish power, and it's just going to become more deadly. Unfortunately, but we can hope for the best and hope that Lukashenko steps down peacefully. Certainly, certainly, yeah. It's. I know the the UN is is getting involved, but mm-hmm. I'm not particularly optimistic mm-hmm. about. Usually, when the, the UN UN's gets involved, ability to. The UN's not the best when it comes to interventions at the moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if you're ever looking for a a horrifyingly a, a darkly comedic moment going uh, only to the extent that it, it's illustrative of, of how ineffective the UN has, has recently been at holding human rights violators accountable. Go and look at um, the members of the UN Commission on Human Rights. <laughs> it's. Yeah. It's truly, truly horrifying. Uh, it's like it's, they're, they're trying to be bad at their job. Yeah, I mean, it's it's abundantly clear that obviously it's difficult for. Um, the UN to do things when when countries like Russia and, and China have, have vetoes on important committees like the UN Security Council, but um, it's it's just really disheartening because the idea of the liberal international order is you have consensus built around things not being allowed like it mm-hmm. at, at the moment um libya and venezuela are currently on the u.s security uh, the uh, the u.n commission on human rights um yeah, brazil yeah. which has increasingly slid towards authoritarianism um under President Bolsonaro, um, there's still marginally a, a a liberal country, but but still disheartening. Um, it, it's 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 really horrifying. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I <laughs> like there's the idea of the UN is. You know, everybody's in the UN. That, that's kind of the point. But if you kowtow to um, to um, human rights abusers, what what's the point? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's <laughs> it's 
it's it's really unfortunate <laughs> the situation we find ourselves in with the United Nations. Yeah, I I mean my my idea is you try to turn NATO in, in, into a group that um is willing to you know put put their foot down over you know violations of of these sorts of I mean, you, you could say norms, but, like, cheating in elections is, like, against the law and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's, and, and it's authoritarian, but it's not, like, the worst thing that happens in the world. Like, genocides and, and stuff. Yeah. And... Both have been allowed to to continue. I mean, I, I'm not trying to relativize like the 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 degrees to which things are authoritarian and, and brutal, but you have actors breaking not only laws but just like the the basic principles of humanity, just like violating the. I, I mean, that's that's why we call them crimes against humanity because yeah. they're so heinous, so unconscionable that they aren't comparable to other, other crimes. Mm -hmm. And I do think that the one issue that, that turning NATO into this sort of institution is, which it, it is to a certain degree, but not to the extent that I think you were, I would like it to be, I think that, and this is where we might disagree to an extent, I, I, I think this is, this leads to having some uncomfortable conversations with NATO allies like Turkey. Yeah. So. Anywho, I, I think that's, that, that's all I have uh, for today. Do you have any uh, other I think uh happenings. I think we've covered it all. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, uh this has been the Foreign and Domestic Podcast. Uh I'm Jake. And I'm Will, and we'll see you next, we'll time. See you next time. Oh, sorry, I took your line. <laughs>